This is an ABC podcast. In 1954, the Premier of South Australia, Thomas Playford, was about to hand over a little present to the Governor-General. The small memento that I'm to give you, sir, has been produced by the officers of the Mines Department. It was a little silver thing that looked like a mining cart. As you see, sir, it is a cigarette box which is designed in accordance with a very necessary piece of machinery from underground. It wasn't handed over at a salubrious Parliament House ceremony, though. The two men were standing at a mining site in the desert, 300 kilometres northeast of Adelaide. They were there to open the nation's first large-scale uranium mine and treatment plant, surrounded by red dirt and Cold War politics. This project is one step, I believe, in the right direction. In due course, I hope that it will be followed as soon as a technical advance enables that to be accomplished with a nuclear power station established in this state. In 1988, we were exporting uranium all over the world to be used in power stations from the US to France to South Korea, but we still had none of our own. Now, there was a new incentive to give it a try. You can't rule out the nuclear option. For the Environment Minister at the time, Graham Richardson, nuclear power presented the easiest route to reducing Australia's carbon emissions. All those who've attempted to rule it out on environment grounds or on, on some sort of doomsday theory in the past, they're going to find it very hard to rule it out in the same way in the future. See, nuclear power stations don't emit any greenhouse gases at all. Nuclear power, though, was, a well, a bit of a radioactive topic within the Australian Labor Party. It was bitterly divided between the right faction of the party, which thought it was a good idea, and those on the left who were worried about nuclear Armageddon. We just continue to have our arguments justified. Would we years ago have uh, painted a scenario as disastrous as Chernobyl? Some opponents of nuclear thought that the nuclear power industry and uranium mining lobby were hyping up the threat of climate change to try and boost their chances of building more power stations. And it is no accident, in my view, that the greenhouse effect has suddenly burst on the scene. A conspiracy to make nuclear power look good. If only. It is true that many countries that are ahead of Australia on lowering emissions have used nuclear power to get there. Nearly three quarters of France's electricity is nuclear generated, and it's more than 10% in Canada and the UK. But these countries established their nuclear industries in the 60s and 70s, before climate change was on the radar. Now, in 2022, they're looking to renewable energy. Meanwhile, the Deputy Prime Minister, Barnaby Joyce, is still telling Sky News that nuclear is the answer. Well, I'm saying that you have to have a pathway, and if you want zero emissions, nuclear power does it. If that's the case, why aren't we doing it? I'm Matt Bevan, and this is Australia If You're Listening, a podcast about why Australia's found it so hard to tackle climate change and what that means for the future. For hundreds of years, Australia has looked down to find our energy, pulling it up from under the ground. And many of the nation's most influential politicians think we should find a way to continue doing that, whether it be using natural gas... We see gas traditional gas as a transition fuel over many years. Uranium. If it is a climate emergency, then everything is on the table. Everything. That means you should consider nuclear energy. Or coal filtered through a sponge. 
Carbon capture and storage offers to reduce carbon emissions from the coal sector by up to 90%. How to use gas, nuclear and carbon capture and storage are debates that have been going on in Australia for years. We've spent a spectacular amount of time and resources trying to figure out how to make them work. So, is there any possibility we can keep on digging for energy? In the 1970s, nuclear power was already controversial in Australia. To change from one form of energy to another takes rather a long time. This is the Nobel Prize-winning chemist Sir George Porter speaking to the ABC in 1976. At first, nuclear power gave him hope. It promised to be incredibly cheap, to be an unlimited source of fuel and so forth. It hasn't turned out that way. It has not turned out to be so very much cheaper. Sir George said if it wasn't going to deliver cheaper electricity, it wasn't worth the risks that came with so much radioactive material being spread around the globe. I don't think we are grown up enough. I don't think we have the experience or the common sense to be trusted with a world in which plutonium is so readily available to every country and every madman who happens from time to time to take charge of that country. By 1988, there had been two significant accidents at nuclear power plants. Firstly, a meltdown in Pennsylvania. On Three Mile Island, power plant workers are trying to figure out how to cool down the damaged reactor. And then an explosion in the Soviet Union. The Soviet news agency TASS said one of the reactors at Chernobyl, north of Kiev, had been damaged. But there are no details of how serious the accident was. Australia, with its enormous quantities of very cheap coal, had not looked into nuclear power in any serious way. We didn't need to. Graham Richardson says any suggestion it be developed domestically was unpopular. I discovered that the women of Australia were so implacably against it that it was going to be a, uh, a political disaster. And uh, the more we researched it, the worse it got. While the women of Australia were apparently stopping the development of nuclear power plants in the 80s, we were still fueling the nuclear energy industry in other parts of the world. Australia was quickly becoming one of the world's largest exporters of uranium. This wasn't without its own controversies. Mining boss Hugh Morgan, our friend from a couple of episodes ago, spent the decade in battle with anti-nuclear and indigenous protesters. They travelled in their hundreds to the remote South Australian town of Roxby Downs to oppose his company Western Mining's efforts to build the world's largest uranium mine there. Hugh Morgan would later become one of Australia's most influential climate change sceptics. But at the time, climate change was a handy argument for mining uranium. Morgan said that nuclear power was potentially the solution to the greenhouse problem. Today, the great dilemma for the, for the greenies and the activists is to contemplate their neighbours about the greenhouse effect and the massive consumptions of coal and the other carbon dioxide generating effects. Now, all of a sudden, they're saying, no, hang on, hang on, maybe, maybe uh, we should be looking at some alternative. He said there were only three ways to decrease greenhouse gas emissions. Stop driving cars, stop farming animals, or... You can have nuclear power plants instead of uh, coal power plants. Maybe the conspiracy theorists did have a point. Anyway, the idea had powerful backers, like Conservative British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. I refer to the threat to our global environment. At the time, Thatcher was one of the most prominent international advocates for action on climate change. But the problem of global climate change 
is one that affects us all, and action will only be effective if it's taken at the international level. The key thing really was that you know she was a chemist. You know originally she was a chemist. That's what she had studied. This is Greg Bourne. He was working at the time as one of Thatcher's energy policy advisors. So she understood very, very quickly the science and the issues that were going on at the time. Thatcher was confident that nuclear power would solve the problem. And I'm thinking of the use of nuclear power, which despite the attitude of so-called Greens, is the most environmentally safe form of energy. Britain's nuclear power stations were providing 10 to 15% of the nation's electricity needs, and Thatcher hoped that would increase. It didn't, though. There was always the, the, the promise that you know, it'll become cheaper, it'll become cheaper, it'll become cheaper. It never did, um, still hasn't really. But she was very well aware that it was part of the solutions you know, going forward. Unfortunately, what we see with the nuclear world, it takes so long to build a power plant, so long to get social license to operate, that other technologies have moved further and faster. Price has always been the barrier. Not explosions, not security. Back in the 70s, 80s and 90s, coal was cheaper. Hugh Morgan, in 1988, knew that was the main thing preventing a nuclear electricity industry in Australia. We've got such a large use of um, a large availability of alternatives uh, and invested capital at this stage in the existing systems. And it stayed that way. Coal is cheap and easily accessible, but of course it is very dirty. Although we've spent quite a lot of time and effort trying to fix that. Will you please make welcome the Prime Minister of Australia, Malcolm Turnbull. In February 2017, when he spoke to the National Press Club in Canberra, Malcolm Turnbull had a lot on his plate. Three days earlier, he'd had an extremely unpleasant phone call with the new US President Donald Trump. The Senate had become very difficult to manage following a double dissolution election, which didn't go the way he'd hoped. And worst of all, household electricity prices were going up. Now, this isn't an abstract issue. Higher electricity prices mean more pressure on household budgets and businesses. And that's why energy will be a defining debate in this parliament. Turnbull was accusing the Labor Party of being too enthusiastic about moving to renewable energy and basing their policies on ideology. He said that coal still had a role to play in our power supply. And as the world's largest coal exporter, we have a vested interest in showing that we can provide both lower emissions and reliable baseload power with state-of-the-art clean coal-fired technology. Clean coal-fired technology. Australia has been working on this for a while. We were very focused on clean coal technology. That's Paul Lucas. He was the Environment Minister in Queensland's Labor government in the early 2000s and very keen to keep burning and selling coal. It is not a little bit. It is massively cheaper than other forms of generation. Our economic development is dependent upon it. The Labor government in Queensland and the Bush administration in the US both started trying to find a way of catching the carbon emissions as they came out of the power station and burying that carbon in the ground. Well, look, what we need to do is to make sure we've got the technology right. If clean coal technology worked, it promised something the government had been chasing since 1990, when Bob Hawke's cabinet said they'd only lower emissions if it didn't cause any economic pain. No regrets. If it worked, you could keep the coal industry going without heating up the planet. 
Even at the time, experts were sceptical. There's not much you can do in the power station to reduce emissions by more than about 10 or 15%. So the coal industry has now focused itself on its last resort option, which is to bury the carbon dioxide back underground. It's not a proven technology. Uh, even if it does work, it's not likely to be cost-effective. The Prime Minister would see it as a, w a way of making him look like he's solving the climate change problem while solving the uh, coal industry's problem of facing oblivion. We need to act much more urgently using technologies that exist and are cost-effective now. There was some hope from environmental groups that carbon capture and storage would work. I mean, it would be pretty sweet if it did. OK, ready to go? OK, my, my name's Greg Bourne. I'm chief executive of uh, WWF. That's Greg Bourne, again. Uh, by now, he was the head of the World Wildlife Fund in Australia, and he was calling on the government to establish quickly whether the technology could work. The way we like to describe it in WWF is if CCS is going to play a part in the solution, we need to know very, very quickly. And if it's not, we actually need to know very much more urgently. Was there ever a chance it could work? You know, you, you, you were calling for a, an inquiry into whether it could work. Did you have some optimism at the time or do you always kind of assume that this was never going to be able to compete with other forms of, uh, of energy? So my view at the time was that this was very, very unlikely to um, play a significant part in the, the mix as we go forward. But my serious worry at that time was that it would be used as the panacea for all ills and therefore allow governments to sit on their hands and not actually get into renewable energy. The quicker one could find out what the cost was, what the social implications were, what the environmental implications were, the better. If those numbers were to be crystallised and thrown in the face of government decision makers, they would very quickly say, this is actually not the way to go forward. It turns out there are a number of problems with capturing carbon dioxide as it comes out of a power station. Carbon capture and storage is actually really hard to do for anything that involves combustion. This is former Commonwealth Energy Advisor Alison Reeve. These days she's at the Grattan Institute. Whether that's a coal-fired power station, whether it's your car, whether it's a, a gas boiler in a manufacturing facility and so on, it's, it's very, very difficult to capture that. The process uses a giant chemical sponge to soak up the carbon coming out of your exhaust stack. It uses a huge amount of energy. About 30% of the electricity generated by the power station goes just to operating that sponge. Then, once you squeeze out the sponge, you've either got to find a way of storing the carbon dioxide near the power station or piping it elsewhere, both of which are hard to do and expensive. But carbon capture and storage stayed on the table as a way of reducing emissions without giving up on coal. And we've kept tipping money into it. Australia is the world's largest exporter of coal. Here's Malcolm Turnbull at that press club lunch in 2017. We've invested $590 million since 2009 in clean coal technology research and demonstration. And yet we do not have one modern high efficiency, low emissions coal-fired power station, let alone one with carbon capture and storage. So more than half a billion dollars and nothing to show for it. Malcolm Turnbull's point wasn't that we should give up, but try harder. You think if anyone had a vested interest in showing that you could do really smart, clean things with coal, it'd be us, wouldn't you? 
And who's got a bigger interest than us? We're the biggest exporter. And yet we don't have one power station that meets those requirements. But, you know, we, we, we really need to strip the ideology out of this debate. Since then, things haven't gone that well. Uh, billions and billions of dollars have been spent trying to make this work. In the United States, a carbon capture and storage coal power plant in Texas was shut down just three years after it opened. And in October last year, a $7.5 billion carbon capture plant in Mississippi was demolished, having never done what it was supposed to do. There's only one coal-fired power station in the world that's operating with carbon capture and storage, and it's relatively small, it's in Canada, and there are no others. This is former Australian chief scientist Alan Finkel. There is an economic question. Um, Is carbon capture and storage viable for existing coal-fired generators? And the proven answer around the world is that it's difficult. The economics are really difficult, and it's not happening. The outgoing head of the Energy Security Board, Kerry Schott, agrees. People have looked at it before and it's never gone anywhere, despite having quite a lot of money thrown at it. The big problem is it can't compete with solar power and wind power. And that's for a very simple reason. Because all solar panels and wind turbines are basically the same. You build a factory and pump them out. And this is where carbon capture and storage fails Every single one of them is different. Every single one is bespoke. And whilst a pump within them might be replicable, the actual plant itself is not replicable. Carbon capture and storage isn't just about that carbon-sucking sponge. Each coal-fired power station is different and needs a solution designed with its specifications in mind to capture and move the carbon. The technological development of it is very slow because every plant is different and and so it takes a long time for it to come down the cost curve because every plant is bespoke. And the other thing is that solar panels and batteries ultimately can be made by robots. Carbon capture and storage units can't be made by robots. The cost can't compete. And competition is the core of how the power market works in Australia. Whoever can supply electricity cheapest wins. Analysis from the government science agency CSIRO found that coal power with carbon capture and storage is at least three times more expensive than renewables. Nuclear power is even worse, even factoring in new technologies. On top of that, Australia would take decades to develop the expertise and facilities to sustain a nuclear industry. Despite all this, nuclear power is, from time to time, wheeled out as a political talking point. This is Barnaby Joyce on Sky News. If the Labor Party in a bipartisan form came, came forward as proper statesmen and women and said they support nuclear power, then we would have a nuclear industry in here and that would be a great outcome for our nation. Ironically, both nuclear and carbon capture and storage would be a lot closer to being able to compete if there was a cost put on carbon emissions, driving up the cost of traditional coal power. Carbon capture and storage really needs some sort of carbon price in order to work economically. But there's little to no chance of that, at least in the short term. The Morrison government also doesn't see carbon capture and storage playing a big role in electricity generation. The modelling they've published about the future of energy in this country shows only a teeny tiny role for it, a sliver of the total energy mix. This is slightly surprising given the government's insistence on Australian coal having a strong future. Coal will continue to play an important role 
in our economy for decades to come. With new technologies such as carbon capture and storage continuing to improve, it will also have an even longer life, not just here in Australia, but in our export markets as well. I just don't know how you could say by 2050 that you're not going to have technology that's going to enable good, clean technology when it comes to, to coal. What the government does see is a future in carbon capture and storage for other things. Alan Finkel says they're not alone. I do come across a lot of people who see the critically important role that carbon capture and storage will have in difficult to abate sectors such as the cement industry. When cement is being made, huge amounts of carbon dioxide are emitted. Generating electricity? We can do that now without emissions if we want. No need to spend all that money capturing carbon. But there are things that are really hard to do without generating emissions. Cement is one. Chemical manufacturing is another. But it's only worth all the money and effort if there's a cost. It's sort of an optimisation question. How much CO2 are you producing? Is that enough to make the investment in carbon capture and storage worth your while? Because someone is imposing a cost on you if you don't deal with your emissions. So carbon capture and storage could play a role in other industries, but that's most likely to happen in a future where it costs something to emit carbon. And when you look at that government projection of our energy supply in the 2040s, of all the non-renewable sources of energy, it's not nuclear or carbon-captured coal that's playing a role. It's natural gas. And it looks like it might be the last fossil fuel on the grid. At the beginning of 2020, Prime Minister Scott Morrison began a campaign to open up more gas capacity in Australia. Central to this agenda is getting access to our domestic gas supplies. We need to get the gas from under our feet. He said the fossil fuel was essential, not only for businesses which use gas to manufacture things like chemicals and plastics, but also to keep the electricity grid running. Gas has a critical role to play as a backstop to our record investment in renewable energy generation. It helps ensure we can keep the lights on when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. His message was clear. So right now, we've got to get the gas. So this was the beginning of 2020. Not a great time to begin a campaign for anything except maybe a national toilet paper stockpile. Weeks later, the COVID pandemic hit and the subsequent recession saw global demand for gas plummet. But the PM's message was the same. Gas was the way to boost jobs and bring down electricity prices. Competitive gas should be helping to fire, gas fire, our COVID recovery. The history of natural gas in this country begins with a whole lot of job losses, including in Victoria's Latrobe Valley. Well, uh, members of our union, there'll be approximately 180 men on this area that are affected. Sound familiar? Men with specialist skills and stable union jobs suddenly finding the industry they've devoted their lives to disappearing out from under them? It wasn't the end of coal-fired power, but coal gas. They've got uh, skills that they've learnt and been trained for in this industry that uh, won't count outside the industry. Up until that point, the gas which was used in homes for heating and cooking and in factories to make paper, metals, chemicals, glass, plastic and processed food had to be manufactured. It's not only the smells that have upset the neighbours. There have also been complaints about the continual banging and clanging 
that accompanies the making of coal gas. Around Australia's large cities, gasworks took coal and baked it in hot ovens until gas seeped out into pipes, which then took it to your home. But the gasworks were closing, being replaced by something new. The floating drilling rig, which has discovered the vast deposits of natural gas off the Gippsland coast. Methane, which naturally seeps out of coal seams, was going to replace manufactured gas. Pipelines buried below the ocean floor will bring the gas to land. Natural gas is coming. 486 miles, Moomba to Adelaide. It's exciting. It's big business. An $80 million project. Without doubt, a marvellous boost for the state. This natural gas could easily beat coal gas on price. It also burned better than coal gas. The ABC did a demonstration of what happens if you run natural gas through a coal gas stove. And if you watch, you'll notice the way the flame flares. The flames were leaping up out of the stovetop in a way which would have you reaching for the fire extinguisher. In effect, what we've done here, without converting the burner, we've put a super-grade fuel into a burner which is designed for a standard fuel. It's a little... Since then, the gas industry has exploded, figuratively. Gas pipelines crisscross the continent, linking just about every reasonably large city with either the East Coast or the West Coast grid, piping fresh gas straight out of the ground to millions of homes and thousands of industries. At the same time, Australia became the world's largest gas exporter, shipping $34 billion of the liquefied product to Asia, making it our third biggest export commodity after iron ore and coal. One of the big drivers of its growth apart from the low price, is global climate action. What can the power industry do? Well, the power industry can uh, switch to uh, uh, natural gas as a fuel. Gas emits about 40% less carbon than coal-fired power, meaning you can cut some emissions by switching from one to the other. Lots of countries with access to natural gas took up this option. Natural gas became the top source of electricity in the Middle East, North Africa, Russia, the UK, Japan, Italy and the US. But now most of those countries are looking to take the next step into renewables. Why? Well, natural gas may be less carbon intensive than coal, but there are still emissions. Plus, there's the fact that like all commodities, the price of gas goes up and down on the world market. And last year when the price of gas went way up, lots of countries started to experience shortages. The British government said it showed their nation had not moved quickly enough to renewable energy. That the UK is still too reliant on fossil fuels. Our exposure to volatile global gas prices underscores the importance of our plan to build a strong homegrown renewable energy sector to strengthen our energy security into the future. The price of wind and sunshine don't change. You can have as much as you want for the same price you paid to listen to this podcast. Nothing. Australia has made very little effort to replace coal-fired power stations with gas-fired ones. While the nation now has 51 gas-fired power stations, they're mostly very small. There might be one near you now without you even noticing. There are three in Melbourne alone, and they only run when demand for electricity is particularly high. But that might change as more coal power plants reach the end of their life. With the impending closure of the massive Liddell coal-fired power plant in the New South Wales Hunter Valley, the government reached for gas. 
To ensure affordable, reliable power, we need the market to deliver 1,000 megawatts of new dispatchable capacity. If not, my government will step up and we will fill the gap. That turned into a plan to build a gas-fired power plant in Curry Curry near Newcastle. It's being built now. Despite this, in the government's modelling for the future of the electricity network, they don't project any significant increase in the role of natural gas in Australia's energy mix. It'll maintain its current output, which will be increasingly dwarfed by solar and wind power. But it will still have a role. Most energy experts we spoke to said it'll be needed for a while yet to support renewable energy. When you get more renewables coming into the grid, you start to get more intermittent changes in supply. So if you've got a very large solar farm and a cloud comes across it, all of those solar panels drop down and then come back up again on on a very, very short space of time. It's true for wind power too. The wind might dip. Something needs to be able to ramp up and down quickly to balance out the gaps. The question for gas is, and this is a pretty contested question, is how much of that balancing do you need and can other things do it? At the moment, what it looks like is that you can get to a grid that's 90% renewable with a combination of you know renewable generation, pumped hydro and battery and other storage. But that last 10% on the current prices of technologies and our best guesses at how those might change, that last 10% will have to come from gas. The biggest problem is not a few hours without electricity or even a few days, but a week or so. We don't know how to deal with that. Kerry Schott says for the near-term future at least, gas needs to be in the mix. For long duration, so say you had a wind drought of a couple of weeks in the winter, and at the same time there wasn't much sun around, you would need power for, you know, two weeks to cover that. Until we've got hydrogen, we do need a bit of gas in the system for those long duration periods. Australia's gas plants are like our ski instructors and tax accountants. They're at their busiest between June and August. That seems likely to continue for a while, until we can build enough storage for two or three weeks without wind and sun. But Greg Bourne says plans to get the gas are not going to make electricity cheaper. The Australian energy market operator, they don't see any need for new gas until well out into sort of 2030 or 2035. No, I don't think this plan can give us lower electricity prices at all. Um, You know, gas is actually um, going to be a lot more expensive than renewable energy that the government seems to be wanting to try to replace. These desperate attempts to continue doing what we do best, getting our energy by digging things out of the ground, are not surprising. And if you hear a lot about them in our national debate about energy and climate change, it's because digging stuff up is another way of saying everything can stay the same. Our plan for net zero by 2050 is the plan that I believe Australians want. It will not shut down our coal or gas production or exports. We know there's very low-cost ways to achieve carbon capture and storage. The government has made it very clear that we see gas as an important transition fuel, Mr Speaker. Carbon capture and storage, natural gas, they might only play small parts in the vision the government has for our future, but they're the easiest parts to talk about. The thing is, throughout history, 
we've only ever added to our sources of energy. Wood, then coal, then oil, then gas, then nuclear. And no governments around the world said, crikey, we need to have lots and lots of oil, let's push it into the system. It happened naturally. But now, because of the externality of the climate crisis, we have to do something that society has never done before. We have to replace the use of coal, oil and gas with zero emission sources such as solar electricity, wind electricity, nuclear electricity and hydroelectricity so that we can literally save the planet from climate change. That means Australia is going to have to leave the centuries worth of cheap energy we have access to in the ground. Never before in human history have we walked away from an existing abundant energy source, but now we're going to have to do it and it won't happen naturally. It's a transition that we've never ever done before where we're replacing rather than adding to the existing sources of energy. On the other hand, we've always known we would eventually need a plan for what we do after fossil fuels. They were never going to last forever. Here's Nobel Prize winning chemist Sir George Porter. Our use of it is only a hiccup in history. If you plot the man's use of fossil fuels against time over a reasonable time scale of a few tens of thousands of years, there'd just be a little blip round about now when we used it all up and then we settled down again to something else. Well, we're never going to use it all up. A small amount of natural gas power will probably be with us for a while. There are very few models for our future generation which see natural gas peaking plants being phased out before 2050. But in Australia, natural gas is a very small part of the picture. And no one sees it getting that much bigger. The big picture is coal. The question is, how long we have to replace our coal-fired power plants before they close? That day might be closer than you think. Australia, if you're listening, is written by me, Matt Bevan. It's produced by Sam Dunn and Will Ockenden, with research by Lexi Metherall. Our series producer is Jess O'Callaghan. Next. Oh, well, <laughs> well, I was born in a coal mine, is one of my claims to fame. University of Melbourne academic Scott Hamilton is from Victoria's Latrobe Valley. I was born in Yalorn Hospital, which was a beautiful mining town. The town was built to house the power station workers... But it was built on top of the coal seam, so the town had to go. So now if you go to that particular place where I was born, it's a big open-cut mine. It's one of the many, many ways the valley has changed to suit the needs of the coal-fired power stations. Not long ago, it was thought that electricity would be generated there for a long time to come. But accidents, politics and economics have conspired to bring the end date closer. How long do they have? And what will we rely on instead? That's next on Australia If You're Listening.